0: Name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We are taking a, a short break beginning today going through Advent and Christmas. So, a, a short break beginning today from our sermon series in Ephesians. And uh, today we're looking at uh, Acts chapter 2, specifically verses 42 to 47. And so, if you'll please open up your Bible to Acts chapter 2. And uh, while, while you're doing that, I'll give a little bit of a context to. To the passage today, um, that if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that in Acts chapter 1, we're told there are 120 faithful followers of Jesus waiting in Jerusalem for the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ to send the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell within and empower his people. And then it happens. Then Pentecost happens. And on Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Peter preaches boldly and clearly of Christ's life, death, Resurrection and ascension, and the Holy Spirit works powerfully through the faithfully preached Word of God, and three thousand people are saved that day. And then our text today picks up just after that, and so now you have this this spirit filled New Testament church that has perhaps as many as three thousand one hundred and twenty members now. But you may remember that the the 3,000, many of them were from all different parts of the world who were just there in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast. But perhaps you know many of them, maybe hundreds of them, were still there in Jerusalem and and are part of the the they, the group that we see in our passage in in verse 42. What we do know for certain is that here in this passage, we see what the the early Spirit-filled New Testament church was devoted to what its priorities were, what it was committed to. And I think there are many lessons for, for churches today, for our church to learn from, from this passage. You know, as one commentator put it, that here in Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, this is a portrait of a normal, healthy, holy community. And, and the longer I'm a pastor, the more I deeply desire for our church to be a, a normal, healthy, holy community. And the more I desire for my children and for your children and for all of the young people in our church to, to value belonging to a normal, healthy, holy community, a normal, healthy ho- local church. And so listen for the things that this church is committed to, devoted to, as I read the passage. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Acts 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. So let's look at this passage together, beginning with verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So that Greek word that's translated devoted devoted themselves means to be continually devoted to, or they continued steadfastly in these things. And we see in this passage that the early spirit-filled New Testament church was continually, steadfastly, devoted to several things and each of these things is set apart by the definite article the they're devoted to the apostles teaching the fellowship the breaking of bread and the prayers we're going to look at those each in turn and then we're going to notice the result that comes from that comes from and and through and because of a a church being devoted to these things okay so the outline for the sermon is we're going to see this church is devoted to god's word Devoted to one another and devoted to worship. Devoted to God's word, devoted to one another, and devoted to worship. Or as one commentator put it, this was a learning, loving, and worshiping church. And so let's look first at God being devoted to God's word. We see this in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles' teaching means more than the merely gathering to hear the Old Testament Scriptures read aloud. The, the, the apostles were, yes, reading passages from the Old Testament, but they were also explaining how these passages were ultimately about Jesus. And they were applying both the Old Testament Scriptures and the teachings of Christ to the lives of this, this early church. And in fact, you, you can read earlier in Acts 2 about, of Peter's sermon. And how he quoted several passages from the Old Testament and how he connected the, that to, to, to the person and the work. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And, and I, I encourage you, to, you know, to read through Peter's sermon. You know, even this afternoon or tomorrow morning if you're not familiar with it. And so this early spirit-filled New Testament church would gather together as a community to hear the scriptures read, preached, taught, explained and applied to their lives by the apostles. Okay, but and don't miss this. right? This passage is describing the, the commitments, the devotions, the, the pattern of the early New Testament church. Immediately after Pentecost. Immediately after the, the once-for-all time outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The miraculous movement of God among them. The flaming tongues, the fire, the, the speaking in different languages, and how all of these... Folks gathered could hear the gospel proclaimed in their own tongue. And yet even immediately after all of that, it's very clear that these early New Testament believers, they knew that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And they knew they needed to be eager to sit at the apostles' feet and to hear God's word read and preached and taught and explained and applied to them. Okay, so why were they so so eager to receive the apostles' teaching? Well, it's clear that these 12 men were God's chosen apostles by the wonders and signs that God was doing through these men to mark them as his apostles. I mean, look at verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That God, through the Holy Spirit, had made it apparent that these men were not just ordinary men sharing their own opinions, Just just random guys sharing their ideas with everyone. No, these apostles were God's apostles. Men chosen by God to teach and to lead and to establish this spirit-filled New Testament church. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12.12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. With signs and wonders and mighty works. So the early spirit-filled New Testament church was continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so let's think, hey, what does that mean for us today? I mean, because all the apostles have died. They're now with Jesus in heaven. Right? So what does that mean for us? Well, God gave us the New Testament scriptures through these apostles. The New Testament is the deposit of their teaching. So what this means is that we are to devote ourselves to the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. As Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, this, this verse speaks of Scripture's authority, right? Breathed out by God, God's Word. And it speaks of Scripture's sufficiency, sufficient to teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us in righteousness so that we can be complete equipped for every good work, every good work that God calls us to. I mean, mean, don't you you desire to be completely equipped for every good work that God calls you to? You see, friends, what, what Scripture says, God says, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, And that's why our church must be committed to to preaching the Bible. Committed to studying the Bible. Because of the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. In fact, the the, the first chapter in our Westminster Confession of Faith is on Holy Scripture. Chapter 1, section 4 says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. You see, a faithful church is going to receive the scriptures as the word of God. A faithful church is going to be a place where where the Bible is is loved, received, and taught, and preached, and studied, and, and obeyed. if you want to be completely equipped for every good work, then be continually devoted to studying the Bible, to hearing it preached, to applying it to your life, to seeking to obey it. You see, you can't be a man of God or a woman of God without being a, a man of the Word of God, a woman of the Word of God. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I think this is an important point that R.C. Sproul makes. He says, there's no such thing as a spirit-filled church that does not give itself continually and steadfastly to the study of sacred scripture. The first sign of a spirit-filled church is one in which the spirit-filled people do not flee from Scripture and seek a substitute for it, but are driven to it, to have their spiritual lives rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And So that's what we see about this early New Testament church, this spirit-filled church that's devoted continually, steadfastly, devoted to the Word of God. Second, we see it's devoted, they were devoted to one another. So look again at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Once again, there's that definite article, the The fellowship. Seems to be indicating something formal, something corporate, a corporate view of, of, of fellowship. And that, that Greek word translated fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. And koinonia means to share in common with. And that root of koinonia appears not only in verse 42 but also again in verse 44 in the word translated common from the phrase they had all things in common so think about it think about what what biblical fellowship means it means to have to share a common life to share life together and this idea of biblical fellowship koinonia is is rooted in the common identity that followers of christ share with one another, that we share a common identity and relationship with Christ, which also happens to be the most important thing in our lives, the most important thing about us. Do you realize that? Your relationship with Christ, your union with him, that's the most important thing about you. It's not our various hometowns or home countries. It's not it's not the, the language we grew up speaking in our homes. It's not the schools we attended or the schools that our children attend or the form of education or our careers and vocations. It's not the clubs and organizations we're a part of. The most important things about us, it's not the, the neighborhoods that we live in, the zip codes we live in. You know, as, as we said you know, a few weeks back going through Ephesians that the people in this room are your people they are your people we all share together in a common identity and relationship and spiritual union with Jesus Christ listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1:9 God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son. You were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Called into that koinonia, that fellowship, that union, that common relationship. Or or think about the benediction that I use every Sunday, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You see, biblical fellowship is a Trinitarian experience that we share in the fellowship of God the Father, the fellowship of God the Son, and of God the Holy Spirit. And our fellowship with other Christians, our fellowship with one another, flows out of our fellowship with our triune God. And so we give to one another and we receive from one another that we're united. We have this in common, that Christian fellowship is is Christians caring for and sharing with one another. Augustine said, so anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any part of them, but cannot by his understanding build up his double love of God and of neighbor had not yet understood them. Or as the early church father Chrysostom put it, in the early church, in this fellowship, the poor man knew no shame, the rich no haughtiness. You see, their, their social status, no matter how big of a gap there appeared to be in the world's eyes, their social status meant nothing compared to their shared identity in Christ, their fellowship. And so it's important that we do not minimize their devotion to one another, not minimize fellowship and the role that it plays in the life of a local church. Derek Thomas says, Few Bible words have suffered more distortion than the word fellowship. We commonly reduce it to chatter and cookies in the church hall, thinking that this is what the New Testament had in mind. Now, I'm not saying that the chatter and cookies and, and donuts and coffee, that's not important. It is important, and it matters. Okay, However, biblical fellowship should never be reduced down to merely that, And that's made clear in our passage. You see, since this early church shared life together, these these members felt a sense of responsibility toward one another. Right? They they were one in Christ. They were one new man. They were part of the same kingdom. They were part of the new family. And look how this is described in, in our passage in verses 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common... And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. But notice that this wasn't a form of forced communism or socialism. This was voluntary generosity, voluntary kindness and sharing. Okay, you know, Liquidating one's property has never been a requirement for church membership in, in a healthy church, Okay, in a, in, in a faithful church. And in fact, the rest of the book of Acts makes it clear that that many christians still owned private property they still had their houses in fact even in our passage in verse 46 many of them still owned their own houses that's how they were able to scatter throughout the city and meet in one another's houses all right but what's the point here the point is that these early christians didn't view themselves as merely a group of people gathered around some common interest they viewed themselves as members of one family and then they felt a sense of responsibility for, for one another. They looked for ways to use their resources and their gifts to, to meet one another's needs. They were generous and hospitable towards one another. You know, later in, in Acts chapter 6, there are going to be some, some widows who, who were being neglected. And so the church springs into action to care for those widows who have no one else to care for them. Why? Because they, they are a spiritual family. We see they asked for and they received assistance when others offered instead of letting their own pride get in the way. They spent time in each other's homes. They ate meals together. They shared life together. Life including the joys and the things worth celebrating and the trials and the hardships. The impossible things and everything in between. Okay, so what does this mean? It means we should be generous with one another because we know that we have, been give, we have been given life and breath, salvation in all things, all things that we have, by our generous God, by our heavenly Father. And he calls us now to be generous towards one another. To love one another well as brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to how 1 John 1, 3, 16 to 18 puts it. By this we know love. And this is a challenging passage. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. See, in deed and in truth, or in word and in deed. Right? Word and deed ministry is used powerfully by God through the Holy Spirit as the watching world takes notice. This is how they know that we really are followers of Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, on the, on the night before the cross. He said this to his closest disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another see this felt responsibility for one another arises out of our common sense of identity that we really are brothers and sisters in christ we really are members of the same kingdom citizens of the same kingdom we really are members of this same spiritual family with the same heavenly father and then we live like this. It's a powerful testimony to the watching world. It's a powerful testimony. It's supernatural. I mean, think about, say, so, okay, a few years after the book of Acts was written, there was a philosopher named Aristides who, who wrote the following to Emperor Hadrian in A.D. 125. As you listen to this, think about how this devotion to one another in the second century church was a powerful testimony to the watching world. Aristotes says, "If one or other of them, speaking about these early Christians, have bondmen and bond women or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another, and from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply the needy their lack of food. Right? They they suffer, they went without to care for one another. Why? Because they felt this responsibility for one another. Why? Because they viewed one another as family. View one another as family. And I think it's worth it for us to think about what this means for us as a local church. And the truth is, over the last 15 years, I've seen this from time to time. I've seen it in city groups, I've seen it in Sunday school classes. I've seen it among members of the choir and other, other groups and ministry teams around the church. There have been multiple times where by the time some need uh, came to me or the pastoral staff or even came to our deacons, that church members had already you know, sprung into action and taken care of it, had, had already been serving one another, handling these needs, caring for one another, providing for one another, sharing with one another. And it's so wonderful to see because that's what the church is supposed to look like. You see, they were devoted to God's word, and they were devoted to one another. Then we also see they were devoted to worship. And so look at verse 42 again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So notice, each of these things has that definite article, the, before it. And so the, the breaking of bread with that with the the definite article it seems to suggest that this is a reference to the sacrament of the lord's supper something specific something formal something that's that's different from just a common shared meal together now the common shared meals we'll see that's happening we see that in verse 46 and those are important but i think that this is this is the lord's supper and then the word the in front of prayers seems to suggest a, a more formal stated corporate Uh, prayer service or part of their worship service rather than you know private prayers that an individual would offer up which and by the way an aside here it's worth noting as you begin to read you read acts 1 and 2 and throughout the, the whole book of acts you'll see that the early church prays a lot they are they are committed to prayer they pray a ton Derek Thomas says hardly anything is more important as a sign of the church's vitality than its commitment to prayer that We ought to be a praying church, and by God's grace, I've always known us to be, and I urge us to continue to prioritize praying together and for one another. But back to the text, if I'm correct, that the breaking of bread and the prayers are more of a formal state of thing, then these are two aspects of the early spirit-filled New Testament church's formal corporate gathered worship. If that's the case, I think we see more detail as to what the the worship of the early New Testament church looked like in in verses 46 and 47. We read, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And so we see that first, day by day, they they went to the temple together. And, And there's some speculation about this, that perhaps they didn't immediately you know, abandon uh, the sacrifices of the temple. But I don't think that's right. I think it's much more likely that they understood, at least at some level, just how hollow and and needless the temple sacrifices were now that Jesus, the true Lamb of God, had come and been sacrificed on the cross to make atonement for our sins once and for all. Okay, so why do they keep going back to the temple together? I think it's possible that the temple courts was only place large enough for all of them to gather to, be, to gather together, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to worship, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I think it's also possible that they went back uh, to, to evangelize and share the gospel with others who were there. But then we also see in verses 46 and 47 that they not only gathered at the temple, but they scattered out around the city in each other's homes to share meals together. And you see that in verse 46, there's no thee in front of breaking of bread. And so I don't think this is the Lord's Supper. I think this is a, a common meal. Common meals they shared together, which are important. I mean, the early church knew what, what we know today, and that is, you know, meals together matters. It matters, you know, gathering and sharing a meal this upcoming week with family members, right? We, we need time together, especially around shared meals, to, to talk, to connect, to get to know one another better, to discuss, to learn from one another, to encourage one another, to challenge one another to know how we can better serve one another and to know how we can be praying for one another. You know, the, the meals that our city groups share, it matters. It's important. It's an important part of that ministry to one another. You know, the meal we're going to have tonight after the worship service, it's, it's important. I mean, I mean, Lord willing, the, the worship service will be a wonderful time, time of communion and then sharing a meal after we worship together in the morning and the evening, my prayer is that it will greatly um, enrich the, the conversation and the mutual ministry that we have to and with one another over this fellowship meal tonight. And then you look back to this Acts 2 text, you see they gathered together for worship and they scattered for further fellowship and discipleship. And You, know, you see in verse 46 that phrase, "...with glad and generous hearts." with glad and generous hearts. So that phrase literally means that with great joy and sincere hearts. Great joy and sincere hearts. And I I think that's telling us that their, their ministry, the worship, the discipleship, this church, this early church was marked by great joy and sincere hearts. And I think the same should be true for us, that our worship should be marked by great joy and heartfelt sincerity. Not merely joy, joy and laughter, but not not merely, you know, solemnity and seriousness, but rather, you know, a combination of of great joy and great sincerity, a combination of reverence and awe, of great joy and sincere hearts, in spirit and in truth. And so, so how does a church maintain worship marked by great joy and great sincerity, worship marked by reverence and awe, worshiping in spirit and in truth? Well, I think the key is to worship God as he commands us to worship him and his word. And I think the simplest way to understand this is that it looks like singing the Bible and reading the Bible and praying the Bible, preaching the Bible, seeing the Bible in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. See, these are the things that the the, the early church was devoted to. They're devoted to God's word, devoted to one another, devoted to faithful worship. Now notice what happened in and through this devoted church. Look at verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the early spirit-filled New Testament church was not so busy being devoted to biblical teaching and fellowship and, and faithful worship that they forgot their mission to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth But even more than that, I think verse 47 tells us that their mission to make disciples was only accomplished as and because they were devoted to these things. Their mission to make disciples was only accomplished as and because they were devoted to God's word, devoted to loving one another well, devoted to faithfully worshiping God in spirit and truth. And as that happened, the Lord moved powerfully through their ministry, and he added to their number daily those who were being saved. See, we can say that this early New Testament church was devoted to what has now become known as the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace, the preaching of God's word, prayer, and the faithful administration of the sacraments. Our shorter catechism, question 88, spells them out for us. It says, what are the outward and ordinary means Whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. How, 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 how are we saved? How do we grow up in Christ? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. See, as we're devoted to these ordinary means of grace, God grows us up in Christ, and God uses us to, to minister to our neighbors and our friends, our coworkers, our family members. See, as they were devoted to ordinary means of grace, as they loved one another, the Lord added to their number. And you see, the Lord did it. See, God is always the one who must save sinners. God must open the spiritually blind eyes. God must unstop the spiritually deaf ears. God must breathe life into these spiritually dead and hard hearts. And God does. And he calls us to be faithful. He calls us to be faithful in, in our evangelism. He calls us to be faithful in our prayers. He calls us to be faithful in loving one another. He calls us to be faithful and sincere and genuine and intentional about the way we worship him. And see, as we do all of these things, God not only moves and works in us, and grows us up spiritually, but God uses our various ministries to impact and to reach the lost around us, and God adds to our numbers. You see, in in evangelism, there's a sense in which both God and we do the work, that God does work through us, which means we have a role to do in evangelism. If we do not preach the word, if we do not tell people about their their sin and their their need for a savior and we not tell people about the savior jesus christ and his life death and resurrection if we don't witness to the gospel then very little happens and we're called to pray and if we don't pray then very little happens but when we do step out and evangelize and witness even imperfectly and when we do pray we see lives are changed and sinners are saved, and whenever lives are changed and sinners are saved, then it's always because God has done it. It's always because, as verse 47 says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, whenever our church grows, we must always remember that it's due to the Lord's blessing. The Lord adds to our number. The Lord grows his church. I mean, we're called to be faithful. We need to be as faithful as we can in preaching the word, as faithful as we can in praying, as faithful as we can in loving one another well. But the Lord must add to our number. You know, as the old hymn puts it, thou must save and thou alone. And notice, when the Lord adds to their number those who are being saved, he's adding those who are being saved to their number in the church. We see that this, Listen to how John Stott puts this. The Lord did not add them to the church without saving them. No nominal Christianity at the beginning, nor did he save them without adding them to the church. No solitary Christianity either. The salvation and church membership belong together, and they still do. And then Stott goes on to to, to point out that in this passage, in verses 42 to 47, we really see the early churches relationships. I mean, we, we see it's, it's relationship with God's Word. They received it. They loved it. They submitted to it. They were devoted to it. They desired to obey it. We see their relationship with one another. They love one another well. We see their relationship to God in worship. They worshiped Him in joy and reverence according to God's Word. But then we also see the church's relationship to the world. And as this church was Devoted to all of these things, this church became a city on a hill. Salt and light to their neighbors. Why? Because of their steadfast devotion to God's word, one another, and faithful worship. And so, my prayer for us is that we would remember these things. We will be encouraged by them, and we will be challenged to, to, to ever be devoted to them together as a local church. And I think it's perfectly fair for, for you to ask in response to this sermon, okay, how, how is our church doing? Where are we doing well? Where do we need to be doing better? But I hope you won't just ask me, how is our church doing? I hope you'll go further and ask yourself, okay, h- how am I doing? How am I doing in my devotion to God's word? How am I doing in my commitment and my devotion? to loving my people well, to serving them? How am I doing in, in, my, in my part in, in preparation to, to come into this sanctuary on Sunday morning to, to worship the Lord in spirit and truth? Friends, our church has a long history, 31 years of faithfulness in this city, and by God's grace, we will continue that legacy long into the future. But that will only happen as we remain devoted to these things amen amen let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you for this 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 portrait of a normal healthy holy community of a learning loving worshiping church our prayer father is that we we would be we would continue to be such a church God, guard our hearts and our minds. Grow us in our devotion to your word. Grow us in our devotion to one another. Lord, and grow us in our devotion to heartfelt, wholehearted, faithful worship according to your word. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.